Welcome back, everyone, to The Op Show, where we bring you the trials and tribulations, the automations and collaborations from the world of DevOps and the greater developer experience. I'm your host, Tristan Pollack, and as always with the CTO.ai founder, Kyle Campbell. In our best show yet, we have Noah Labhart, not Lambert, not to be confused with the famous country singers of our age, the CTO and founder of Variable, as well as the podcast host of Code Story. Uh, an amazing podcast that dives into the behind the scenes code from a lot of startup founders. Noah, thank you uh, for coming on the show. Welcome. Great to have you here. Thanks. Glad to be here. Thanks for the Lambert check there in the beginning. I certainly appreciate that that consideration. <laughs> the Lambert <laughs> you nailed check. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally nailed it. <laughs> I'll make sure to put that down as a hashtag for the show. Lambert check. Uh, so. Yeah, tell us a little bit about your story. Uh, you know how you you know got into working on startups. Um, how you uh, started the podcast would be great. It's really interesting to hear about both of those and uh, to to kick us off. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, I spent a lot of time in the corporate world before I jumped out into you know, entrepreneurship. Uh, worked at Alcon Laboratories for eight years. Did the tech IT thing. Um, learned a lot. Was well taken care of. Uh, but always had the entrepreneurial itch. You know, I just wanted to jump out and do my own thing. Um, have a lot of family members who have their own businesses. And so it's kind of in my blood a little bit too. And so in 20, what year was it? 2016, 2015, 2015 excuse me. Um, decided to jump out. Um, my extremely beautiful and supportive wife uh, agreed that we could um, leave all of the benefits of corporate America behind and <laughs> give this entrepreneur thing a shot. Um, so we did and jumped out and started an agency, a mobile dev agency for, uh, ran that for a few years, started out as just me and then ended up growing it to, uh, you know, 15 ish contractors uh, that worked with me on different projects. And it was really great. Got to work. I basically got to build startup solutions. And, uh, after doing that for a couple of years, I was like, I want to build my own, my own startup solution. I want to do my own, uh, product, but I don't have any ideas. I'm not the idea guy. I'm the executor. Um, so I, I networked with a few of my friends was like, Hey, if you know anybody looking for a tech founder, let me know. Um, I'll at least talk to them and see if it's a good fit. And so, um, my old college roommate, Rylan Barnes, who is also a tech entrepreneur, um, hooked me up with my current partner, Mike Kinder. Um, and we started variable in 2016, launched it in 2017. So, so that's where, where that all started and, um, kind of been doing startups. Awesome. Uh, tell us a little bit about Variable, too, and what you're doing with it. Yeah, absolutely. So Variable is an on-demand marketplace for manufacturing labor. So we're the Uber for the shop floor. Everybody has an Uber tagline, so that's ours. Um, <laughs> so we provide businesses with the uh, opportunity to um, capitalize on flexible labor. So be able to ramp up and ramp down their workforces on the shop floor and the distribution center along the supply chain. Uh, ramp up or ramp down based on their demand. And we give workers the opportunity to work for multiple companies, create their own flexible schedule, and get paid every day. Um, so that's that's what variable is. Awesome. Yeah, it seems like uh, something that is needed more and more, especially in this time and age of, you know, people having to move in and out of uh, roles or, you know, with furloughing and people getting sick and the craziness that is COVID. Um have, how have you been seeing the reaction like with uh, with the manufacturing space and your business? And also, yeah, what you got know, you started in that space? I mean, that's an interesting space to go from mobile <laughs> to manufacturing. 
<laughs> sure, sure. That's a, that's an interesting question. So I'll, I'll answer that one first, and then I'll go back to COVID for Tristan. Um, so on that one, um, you know, I worked as a, a college kid in a manufacturing plant, so on the shop floor, packaging up insulation, actually fiberglass insulation, which I would not recommend to anyone um, <laughs> doing because it's a it's an itchy job, but uh, somebody's got to do it. And so I did it for a summer. And then at Alcon, when I worked in the corporate world, I supported manufacturing for three or four years uh, on the shop floor um, at two different plants, actually, from a technology standpoint. Um, so I knew the environment. <clears throat> um, and when I met Mike Kinder, my partner, he, his idea was around um, on-demand labor, was around um, you know, enabling that flexible capacity to be able to enable manufacturing to step into this new era of technology. Um, and he had, he's been in manufacturing for, um, 15, 20 years or so, uh, working as an operations manager in shop floors, as a consultant, doing a bunch of different stuff. So, uh, he came and pitched the idea, having done some time in manufacturing and having built startup ideas, I couldn't shoot holes in it. And so bang, here we are, um, a few years later hmm. and, and doing, doing the thing. Um, as far as the, you know, kind of COVID and, and what's, what we've seen happen, it's been interesting, you know. I think everybody was sort of knocked flat with COVID uh, in the beginning. Um, we were able to continue retaining all of our employees um, and still remained a pretty flat tra uh, revenue um, trajectory. Uh, so it didn't, we were growing and then we kind of fly with COVID. Okay. Um, yeah. But then, um, but then after that, uh, after the stimulus money started running out, people had to start working again. Um, and they jumped back on the platform. So we've actually seen our biggest month yet uh, this past month in August um, and are continuing that upward trajectory. That's very interesting. Oh, that's great to hear. What's your take on generally manufacturing in the U.S.? I mean, I know that was a big issue in prior elections. I'm from Canada and don't have that much of a context for it. But obviously, <laughs> like manufacturing, stateside manufacturing is, is a, a pretty big subject. And, and I would think that that's probably a driver of what would be your major or, or sort of market. Um, but I mean, is that an incorrect assumption? And, and what, what are you seeing as far as manufacturing as a whole um, in, in the industry? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting to watch it sort of um, unfold now. And it is, you know, we're focused on the United States, at least, you know, for the, for the foreseeable future. And um, you know, Bringing manufacturing back stateside has been something that's been obviously of interest to us. That topic of you know, it's we we you know focus a lot on making sure that we are politically agnostic. We are um, economically um, uh, driven, and we are um, you know focused on creating value for the businesses that are here. But you know, we look and we do understand the manufacturing environment. We look at people that are that did in the past offshore their, um, we'll say offshore, remove their operations um, to different countries, to different in, uh, you know places to do their manufacturing. What we what we've seen is that it doesn't really save them that much money, and it creates a lot more problems than um, than it uh, improves. So we see a lot of people coming back. We see a lot of people bringing operations back to stateside, um, which helps us um, because and there's more manufacturing individuals to work with. Mm -hmm. And people that are in new operations as well are much more um, open to using this sort of third labor paradigm, which, you know, there's full-time labor, there's temp staffing, and then there's us. And what's sort of um, the incentive for them there? Is that sort of to help them manage the all-in kind of increase on OPEX around labor costs in relative to cost of living, obviously, in, in, in uh, America? 
you, you said the, the incentive to bring it back? Well, the incentive maybe to use your platform as a driver mm. as they're bringing it back. I mean, beyond just the efficiency, I mean, I think one of the main reasons why people obviously have always offshored is cost center. Uh, and then mm. there's these sort of what I call opportunity costs or the hidden costs of offshoring or, you know, looking at that lower cost of subsidizing, um, you know, your operations. Uh, so I think obviously if they bring, are bringing it back, you know, what they're dealing with is a higher cost of living in many cases, I, w- I would assume. And mm-hmm. do you guys fit into that paradigm as part of the value proposition? And they're saying, hey, look, with this paradigm, we're driving a greater deal of efficiency by bringing on demand labor so we can have a higher quality of what we're producing. Um, but we're but, but that's because we're staffing it more, in, I guess, intelligently. Yes. No, you're, you're exactly right. So bringing it, so we do fall into that paradigm and we want to be a part of that value prop of bringing it back. Right. Because what we offer is, you know, basically manufacturing plans, their capacity based on averages, right? Okay. It's like, okay, this is what our, we, we think our demands going to be. So we're going to average it and think what, you know, our average uh, labor capacity should be. And that's what we're going to staff up to full time. Mm-hmm. Right. And as as your demand goes up, which everybody wants their demand go up, you want your sales team to kill it. Right. You want to you want to have more orders than you know what to do with. But then that becomes an operational problem. Either you can hire more full time people, which Mm -hmm. is expensive and an administrative burden, or you can bring on temp staffing, which you don't know who you're going to get. You potentially and, and most of the times get poor quality workers and you have to commit to a certain time period. Mm-hmm. Where we come in is that we allow people to work with on-demand workers, work with um, people in discrete amounts, get them familiar with their operation, build up kind of a what we, a favorites list, what we call your labor pool, people you've worked with, and then be able to bring them in and let them not let them go, but basically as your demand falls, their opportunity, their work, you know, ends so to speak. Um, and then you can essentially ramp up and ramp down your workforce just in time, like you would inventory or like mm-hmm. you would, um, you know, things, things of that yeah, so or I mean, web service right. analogies to the DevOps and technical domains. It's, I mean, there's peaks. It's in elastic values. labor. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. That's very interesting. That's the, that's the goal. And that's the idea. And a lot of the long-term dreams that we have are hooking into enterprise software mm-hmm. and being able to end to end automate that based on real time orders. So, bring in orders. We understand your metrics of your operation. We can calculate your on-demand labor needs, post that to our marketplace and people just show up as your, as your orders come through. That's the dream. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things in between all that, that we hope to solve. Um, but that's the, that's the dream. Wow. It's even more now analogous to the things that we're trying to achieve with the ops platform than I even realized. I mean, really what we're, we're trying to do is create this concept of a workflow, which is almost like, you know, a component of your manufacturing chain, allow you to drive context into our system. And we're not really looking at it from a perspective of how we help you deliver on-demand staffing, but we're more saying, hey, here's how you can then bring that context into those conversations. And obviously, you're going to make the decisions about how you hire. And there's because there's nuances there, obviously. I mean, I think manufacturing, you're looking at a longer time horizon in software. You know, sprints are typically more shorter iterations and more persistent. You can never build fast enough, right? Um, whereas I can see <laughs> in manufacturing, there's more of this sort of scale up, scale down based on seasonality mm-hmm. or market demand or, you know, the actual quality of the product that's being received in the market. It seems like it's likely more volatile, therefore driving a, a better use of your product. My, my question is like, what are some of those things that you 
are currently instrumenting. I mean, you're saying that you'd like to be able to tap into, I assume, like Salesforce to gather sort of the top of funnel information, but around the fulfillment and the delivery, are you instrumenting um, anything around, you know, even hardware or other aspects of the, I guess, supply chain? Yeah, not not really. Um, so so we are you know we're not looking at Salesforce. You mentioned Salesforce. We're actually okay. looking at enterprise systems. So we're okay. building our point of view is, is we're building um, a way for a solutions architect to essentially go into a manufacturing operation, tap into their ERP or their MES or their you know WMS LMS whatever the system might be. Yep. Pull in real-time information, pull in real-time work metrics um, around their operation, and then we take that and calculate their on-demand labor needs. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, tapping into um, those types of data sources and then running it through our system, popping out the types of work that they they need uh, to our marketplace, and then automatically filling workers from wow. that point. So we're not we're not touching in hardware. We're not touching in the actual operation. Right. We're bringing we're trying to situate ourselves um, in digital factory and in industry 4.0, the buzzwords around manufacturing, mm-hmm. where we sit as one of the apps and connect horizontally and vertically in that ecosystem. Yeah, and there's, I assume there's less cloud adoption in this market either way. So you're going to have the challenge of dealing with probably less consistency in what you integrate. Therefore, the enterprise architect, am I, am I following? Okay. How, that, that's correct. How do you that, now, as these enterprise architects, I mean, that's that seems like part of the the big fulfillment challenge or implementation challenge, right? Right. So we're kind of in this middle weird time frame where enterprise software is drifting towards the cloud, mm. but they're not there yet, right. right? People are trying to, you know, and and, the, and I don't know if they're ever going is going to be fully cloud, right? For a lot of these enterprises, it's going to be private clouds, mm-hmm. right? It may be off off-prem, you know, storage or off-prem systems, but it'll be private clouds. Uh, you, but but why, the point why is... Why do you think that? Is it just too big of a leap or is it... Okay. It's too big of a security leap from, okay. from what I can tell. Yeah. Um, it would be great if they did get to that because then the ecosystem would be a little more pure, but I, I don't see everybody wanting... I don't see everyone having the champion um, on their team to do that. If that makes sense, you got to have the person that's on the team. that's like really believes in going fully, uh, cloud-based solution. And, uh, with some of these bigger corporations, it's just not, it's not there yet. It's a longer play. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the systems, the enterprise systems are drifting towards the cloud. So some systems were able to connect with, or could, could connect with, um, in a much easier way. But when we get to the point where we're, you know, connecting with uh, enterprise systems that are on-premise, right, it's going to take a solutions architect to be able to pull that information and push it out to our system. Uh, and that's where we look for, you know, um, in a, uh, implementation partners like consultants and, uh, you know, like say like PricewaterhouseCoopers or KPMG or things like that to go into these operations and say, this is how you win with variable um, you hook up your system and you do this engagement with us and we essentially automate your end-to-end labor needs. So they drive the fulfillment, the consulting, and you've just worked out sort of these partnership arrangements to them where you're a vendor and they're your sort of ISV as I, I understand the terminology. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, it's interesting, like if we went the other route and didn't have these integration partners, we would essentially be trying to create connectors for every system, right? And that makes a lot of sense for, you know, SaaS solutions out today. You got integration, you know, you guys are big on integrating into Slack, you know, right? And integrating into all all kinds of third-party systems, right? Um, But for enterprise systems, it's just not that way, right? And and even for cloud enterprise enterprise, um, uh, systems, so it would require that um, 
that on-prem architect. Uh, and we don't want to go be the kind of connector. Um, we don't want to kind of pick and choose who we think the best connectors are. We want to build our API and say, okay, you are our implementation partner. You go have this engagement and connect to their systems to ours. Makes sense. Let you be more of a platform, serve a broader base of the market without zooming in on every single you know, domain that is maybe not high context, high value for you. That's right. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. It's, it is interesting to see like a lot of the comparisons and Kyle, I were just talking about um, what, like the the supply chain comparison of the real world to the software world and, what fits and what doesn't. <laughs> I chuckled. Kyle had a bunch of opinions on that. <laughs> yeah, well, this is a great example. Why, Tristan, right? Because, like, you know, when I, we saw this ad by, you know, I won't call them out, but some somebody in this sort of, like, DevOps space, and they're like, your supply chain. And, and like, you know, we've taken these terms from manufacturing, like Agile or, you know, Kanban or, or what have you, and we've tried to take mm-hmm. these ideas and bring them into software. But I just kind of laugh at it sometimes because it feels very self-important in the in the regards that it's like trying to reinforce this idea of complexity for complexity's sake and it's like you know really in software i feel like you should be thankful especially in cloud-based systems you should be thankful at the ease of integration the ease of being able mm-hmm. to develop and that really just doesn't exist in the manufacturing world so to take their terminology and apply it to the space that we're in i i don't know i just i have a hard time with it because again i think it feels self-important in some way that isn't genuine to the realities of how wonderfully easy it is to build software in, in yeah. many cases, right? Um, and no, never before have I seen, I guess, like a more literal example than what you're exactly describing that you help your customers with, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah, I, it is. It's a beautiful thing how easy it is to integrate software, but it does. You, when you start to get in the world of atoms and trying to shift people around too, not even just physical stuff, hardware, machines, it's people. Uh, your eyes are open to how good you got it right? <laughs> when you're, when you're integrating software. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure there's lots you can learn though as well. I mean, and that's probably the core thing that I do subscribe to with that. Those sort of like parallels is like, you know, the more we can learn about manufacturing and then, you know, draw from it on an accelerated time frame that software offers. I think the stronger you're able to transpose that um, ideology into the new era. And, and I really like, I don't, I don't think that those analogies are wrong. At all. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think a big part of how we're thinking about software is like the next era of how manufacturing has been built. And that's pretty much the premise for everything we've learned. I just think we sometimes discredit how easy software actually is relative to hard manufacturing and the kinds of things that were happening during, you know, more industrial eras. Right. Yeah. Yep. That's good stuff. Yep. I think everyone should go spend a summer on the shop floor. It'll really open your eyes to (laughs) a lot of different things. (laughs) Yeah. I can say I've never worked any kind of marketing or uh, manufacturing job. So I, I, yeah, that's maybe something I should, I should do, but I think especially for engineers, it's a really um, powerful thing to look at, you know, I guess less modern software and go back to this Mm -hmm. idea of like, you know, where engineering came from and hard delivery around hard, items and timelines that are exasperated so that you have to make really good decisions because over three years, those decisions play out and you're right or wrong. Whereas in software, you can ship an MVP in 30 days and be like, all right, scrap it, which, you know, I know that's something that, that you subscribe to. We've talked about this in the past around thinking about an MVP, how to build an MVP, how to stay lean. Would love to hear a little bit about how you think about that, how your team has approached that because it's clearly a competitive advantage, right? 
Right, right, sure. Um, sure, no, that's, I mean, we, the way we approach software is we, we ship fast. I mean, we're, we're developers, we want to ship fast too, but we, from the very beginning, we focused on building a tight core product, right? And I think that aligns with, there's a, there's a lot of our internal values that align with manufacturing and building a tight core product, something that's going to work that you can build on top of is extremely important. That's something that we have done. Um, so you look at a manufacturing line, right? You got to get the line right and then you can add on to it, right? You can get your automation engineering team to add in a SCADA system or add in a quality check or adding X, Y, and Z, right? Um, but it has to be really good at the core of the product. And that's the way we um, approach building our platform. Um, and, you know, sometimes you got to go in after certain certain times and, and maybe not gut the thing, but change the foundation a little bit. Right. You got to go in and, you know, we're working through changing our monolithic architecture into microservices. Right. Which, you know, everybody's got a, an opinion and a story there. Um, but w- that's what we're doing. And um, that's, you know, essentially changing our tight core product. And, and it's what, what what it's standing on. So we're doing that in a very diligent way um, to make sure that it's correct. Um and it's not doesn't mean that it's perfect, and it doesn't mean that we don't ship as as quickly as we can, but it does mean that the the ideas that we've built the company and the product on still have to maintain true when we're doing even building a microservice. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think one of the things that I I really like about that is we get into this idea of doing it right in in software, and I think it's because we look at things over such a short time horizon where you know three years ago, monolith was the right thing to go. And now it's, you know, microservice is the right thing to do. And I think truth is, is like neither one of them is necessarily right. I think it kind of depends on what you're trying to do. And I think mm-hmm. like early on, a monolith is really great. One code base, less overhead of configuration and management. That's getting your assembly line figured out. Then as you start mm-hmm. trying to optimize and isolate aspects of the delivery pipeline um, or the manufacturing line, you're sort of optimizing. And that's where you start to have the opportunity to break things out and encapsulate them in services so that you can separate concerns. And And I think, you know, really there's sort of this journey that you go on and I call it DevOps over time or software development over time where, you know, the decisions that you make early are not the same decisions that you want to make later. But yeah, I think you sometimes we get confused with the idea that the decisions later are the right decisions early and they can be, mm-hmm. but it's also not to invalidate the idea that a monolith is not the right thing because it's a, it's a smaller footprint, less overhead for you to be able to configure and deliver. You get that line set up and then you start figuring out what are the things that are working? What are the things that need to be rewritten? And I think when you start looking at more of these like hybrid models or even like a progressive model or an evolutionary model, how you build software, um, I think it opens up a wide world of strategies that you can use to really um, manage risk in, in how you implement, uh, but then also accelerate towards write faster because you're bearing the benefit mm-hmm. of not taking on too much of the overhead of assuming you're right early. That's right. Yeah, no, that's good. That, that ties back to something else sort of that we we sort of believe and have worked on is using unconstrained models, like starting out um, doing something in an unconstrained way and then constraining it as we know more. 
right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's interesting. You talk about monolithic to microservices and how unique it is to a solution too. Um, that's where Code Story comes in for me. Like I, I think every week I have a different conversation with the founder who's done it in a different way. And some people have, you know, taken their monolith to model-based microservices and some have still have a monolith and they're serving millions of people on a monolith and it's working great. Some have half a monolith and a few microservices and they don't know when they're going to get to the rest of the transition, but they're doing business and it's awesome. So it just, it's really, it's really interesting to see how, uh, unique people's perspectives and execution is on, on that specific thing. Yeah. Best programming language is the one that you can use is what, you know, some people say, <laughs> I think there's a similar kind of a viewpoint that I've seen emerging and I've had some discussions with founders or people, you know, I had a discussion with TJ Hollowchuck about this on Twitter, where there's sort of a same, similar bifurcation of like, do I bootstrap? Am I an indie dev or do I do VC? VC is bad because wasteful money, but um, you know, one of the things I, I started coming around to this year, especially since we bootstrap and now are also VC funded, is after reading Blitzscaling, um, the book by Reid Hoffman, I sort of realized that, okay, well, it's actually more like you want to bootstrap early because you're pre-product market fit and you're not trying to accelerate because you're probably wrong. <laughs> and then as you start to be right, you want to accelerate quick because competition is a bigger threat. And, and so I think this decision making, whether it's technology or building businesses, and, and I also think there's a, like cross-cutting concerns between the two of those examples yeah. that make it even more complicated to understand. But I, I think this is where you know strong decision making relative to the dynamic landscape of what you need is, is important. I think that's one of the things that having a strong CTO you know really brings to the table is that intersection of like these technology compromises with you know business decisions and when do we go fast and when do we go slow. And, you know, what's the right strategy for that now? And what's the right right strategy for that later? And how do we not shoot ourselves in the foot in the middle? Because we still got to pick this up and bring it over there, right? That's right. Yep. Yeah, it's still like kind of operating on uh, just-in-time needs, right? You're aligning with with the business needs. You're building technology to meet that business need. You're getting it out fast as soon as possible. You're building as right as you know at the time. And you're doing the right thing at the right time, which could be, you know, could mean building the right feature, but it also could mean, you know, I don't know, undoing something, some technical debt that you had built in the very beginning. So and it's, it's all relative. Yeah, it is. It really is. Um, so tell us about how Code Story started. Uh, you know, that's been a great podcast where I'm sure you've heard from many different, as you said, many different CTOs and probably learned a diverse set of things about how people look at this. I mean, how did it start and, you know, what are you learning from it as you release more and more episodes? Absolutely. So yeah, Code Story, um, as you said, is my podcast, uh, interview startup CTO founders. So it started and I released the first episode in June 2019. So it's been a little bit over a year now. Um, It started out, uh, I was a podcast junkie and um, still am. So can't can't, uh, refute that. Uh, I listened to uh, How I Built This by Guy Raz. Uh, and when I found that podcast, I just, I mean, I ate it up. It's just every one. every yeah. episode. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He does such a great job. So, you know, he, he and his team, and I, I think it's part of NPR too, it, it, he, isn't te- he and his team does a great job with the music and the narration and the creation of a engaging story. But the way that he interviews the people are also really interesting too because it, it feels like you're in a coffee shop with him. Mm. And he's like, whoa, wait a minute. What? I'm going to ask this question. right, But he's doing it on purpose because he's trying to draw out some some tense parts of the story and then later on resolve it because i don't know because he's good like that yeah um so i loved that podcast and i was like i want that but i want it for tech you know i i want it for for tech people and there were some podcasts out there that did a good job 
Um, but there, there wasn't really anything that was a production. There wasn't really anything that took the music and really tried to create a tension in the story that did some narration. It was more kind of um, interview based. Mm. So I, I was like, I, you know, I had some friends that started a podcast and I was like, they look like they're having fun. Um, maybe I'll, maybe I'll try to do it myself. I've got a, a music background, so I know audio, I know how to record, I know how to do all that stuff. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to give it a shot. Recorded my first episode um, with Ryland Barnes, who I mentioned earlier, um, and kind of got his his uh, story there. Um, and so, you know, we were we did the interview. He came over to my house. We did it. You know, it we were supposed to do like a 30, 45 minute interview and end up going two hours. Um, <laughs> so we had two hours of roll to go through. And then um, and then I got to editing and it took me six months to edit the first <laughs> episode time to revise and, that, uh, that 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 manufacturing process right <laughs> yeah yeah that's right and finally i was like okay i'm getting in my own way so i hired an, hired an editor so i had an editor for the first two seasons i'm i'm back to doing it myself for season three but first two seasons i had an editor that really i worked closely with on the music and the story and i finally got out of my own way it's like i just got to get content out there and learn how this works and um finally did that and so we launched the first episode. We were doing it every two weeks in uh, June of last year. And then now we're doing it every week and I actually do multiple a week now if I have extra content. So wow. it's been really fun. And, and what I'm learning, I mean, I, I learned so much from, um, from people and the, the way that they approach problems. I, I learned so much about being a tech human. Uh, you know, because I really want to draw out those human stories of like, what did what did it feel to have to fire that person, you know, or what did it feel to choose that technology early, right? And then realize, oh crap, I got to rewrite the back end now uh, because that that framework's not going to work anymore. Um, and so, you know, just kind of getting to share those experiences with them, I learned a ton. I learned a ton about ton about myself, about them, and about you know, how people solve problems. I really enjoyed being on it and then listening to it. It definitely gave me that guy Roz, but it also, uh, the other thing that it reminded me of, um, I don't know if you've ever listened to any of Gimlet's productions, but they did one specifically, mm -hmm. one of the early ones. It was called startup or something like that. Yeah. And it mm -hmm. was like a season. Um, and then the second season was like a, a separate second season. And what was cool about that one is it drew out all those raw pieces like you're talking to, but they also followed someone through, the journey. And I think that's mm -hmm. one of the things that often gets missed sometimes is like, you're almost always looking back in retrospect, but for them to show that almost like the time horizon of how much suck you can go through in, a, <laughs> <laughs> in that journey and just like, and still come out the other end with something very interesting. I thought it was, is it was very compelling. It was more, it was a little bit more documentary style, I guess, which was mm -hmm. a very interesting format for it. And I wish, I wish we saw more of these things that are drawing out that those, you know, not necessarily those painful things, but it's only, you know, the things that people overcome because it's so mm -hmm. valuable um, from a learning perspective for the people who are coming up. I mean, you don't, it's not like you learn this stuff in university, right? That's right. You don't, uh, -uh. you learn it from networking or just being in the trenches and, and getting hit and getting back up. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool. It's a good perspective. And I think it's, you know, this kind of like it's went from like storytelling to like journey telling a bit, especially in the in with startups. And, and you've seen this in, you know, with what you're doing and indie hackers and there's, you know, platforms just kind of promoting this what's what's happening behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what is it? What is it actually like? And, you know, really being able to follow and like, build community and, and empathy and compassion around it, uh, which is a really cool, um, you know, revelation now in today's like modern working world yeah yeah for sure 
Where do you go with po- po- uh, with code story? Do you do you tend to sort of keep it grassroots, sort of non advertiser based? Do you think it turns into something bigger? Like what? In your three seasons in, is it for the love of the creation, or is it is it does it got bigger legs? Well, what's what's the ambition with it from from here after three seasons? You know, that's a that's a great question, and honestly, Kyle, I'm trying to figure that out right now. Um, <laughs> I I it's definitely for the love of the creation for two reasons one because i love the artistic part of it it's a nice little like um side project for me um and two it's for the love of the artistic expression because the advertising advertising market sucks right now Uh, so um so i did you know did early on kind of take on some advertising at different episodes and that helped kind of pay expenses when i had an editor now i'm doing it myself and so i don't really need that um but where it could go i mean if, if I could get the exposure that I want, um, I would love for it to blow up because I, I think that people would like it. And, and I think that I've gotten some good feedback um, that people do like it. So I'd love to share that with them. And, you know, if that could turn into a monetary thing, cool. If it could lead to some other, you know, like opportunities, that's that's cool too. You know, it's, it's not really for um, making money right now. Um, although if it did, that would be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, in worst case, you've got this, huge network of, you know, really smart people who you've been able to understand their stories, learn from, and then likely that I I figure you just keep on the path you're going. I mean, the network effects of uh, opportunity driving opportunity is always, uh, you know, I mean, that's the only reason you're on, you came to the op show is that we connected over code story. So there you go, right? We just keep that one rolling and you'll be present. Totally. I was like, I need to talk to this smart guy, Kyle, <laughs> right here. I need to talk to him, and I need him on my show. Appreciate that. Appreciate <laughs> it that. was a great episode. I like that, too. Yeah, that's basically, I mean, what happened to me is, you know, I talked to Kyle, and I was like, okay, I need to work with this guy. <laughs> that's he's, right. He's make me now, now, I get, now I get to talk to him all, every day. Right. How's that going for you? <laughs> I learned something new every day from Kyle, and so it's, it was well worth it. Yeah, I feel that's like that's awesome. that's the benefit of these sorts of um, community-driven episodes. I mean, you know, we did the one podcast and we weren't that involved in the production of it. Um, you know, Miyuko was driving it and we sort of had a production company that was supporting her with it. And, you know, it was great to see the network of people that they brought in and the caliber of network. But we really have had a different experience, Tristan, I think, with this show and getting to talk directly to people like you, Noah, and just learn and like, you know, often I come into these very much without um, too much of a plan or too much context. Obviously, you know, we've talked before, so I have a much better context for you. But it's incredible to me the stuff that we just learn on the fly from from mm. talking. Um, and, you know, we're tempted to make it more structured in some ways. But to be honest with you, it's almost <laughs> like these ad hoc insights where we're just exploring it is one of the driving value propositions of it. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it can be a little bit long winded uh, at times, but you know, <laughs> yeah. So without the preconceived notions and, and, and it's, yeah, it's almost, uh, become this, uh, like you were saying, Noah, like kind of a coffee, a coffee. Just, we're just kind of like riffing, but we're recording it and then sharing it. <laughs> yeah. Totally. I mean, those types of conversations are, are really valuable, right? Like if someone could, you know, is a budding entrepreneur and, you know, they see Kyle, right? They see Kyle on LinkedIn or something like, I'd love to go have coffee with Kyle and bend his ear. Well, that's what these kind of conversations are, right? It's mm-hmm. like, like, oh, well, yeah. Noah, Tristan and Kyle sat down and, and bent each other's ear on, you know, how to do all this stuff. I'm sure there's some nuggets in there that I can take away as if I was sitting there with them. So I love it. 
Let's zoom, well, in. Speaking Let's zoom of, in on Noah then here. Yeah. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> well, yeah. So even you've talked, you've had these great, you know, stories um, talking into the technical side of all these businesses. You know, what are some of like the, the takeaways, the trends, like some of these learnings that you have been hearing and, you know, whether it's just stuck with you or you've seen it repeated on different episodes? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, I've been thinking about that a lot and I've been thinking about putting together kind of like the learnings episode, right. And just, just pulling stuff out of all the conversations and, um, Reed Hoffman, you know, has some really good versions of that on his podcast that I think is a, probably an awesome architect type for that, where I think it's the 12 commandments or whatever that he does. Mm-hmm. And he's pulling out mm-hmm. all of these amazing pieces from all of the individual episodes. I could really, I'd get really jazzed with that if you did that actually. <laughs> well, uh, we'll stay tuned. Yeah, okay, uh, I'm, 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 we're going to, we're, we're bullet pointing the episode right now. Cool. Um, so yeah, I think that in general, um, I'm amazed that everybody's story is a little bit similar and everybody's story is um, very different. Um, I, I've talked to a lot of people that have started on one back end, but have rewritten uh, their back end uh, a year or two in, which is I always found really interesting because I've had to go through that. Um, and uh, it can be really, really painful and really disruptive. So I thought that was, that was really interesting. When it comes to team, everybody's sort of looking for the same type of person. Um, they're looking for someone that's going to think uh, a little bit entrepreneurially, that's great, that's going to be able to um, figure things out on their own, that's going to be able to sort of like self-teach um, and think about it from what the, the perspective of the company, which is, is seems obvious, but, um, it is still hard to find sometimes. Um, so that's, that's that part. I've been really surprised by how scalability has gone all over the map. So we talked about, you know, monolith microservices, things like that, but some people are, were required to introduce like kind of a microservices or a really highly scalable solution in the very beginning. Um, as opposed to others that are like, you know, yeah, I threw it into a WordPress site or I, you know, used a parse framework, which I'm, I did that. Um, and, and, you know, it's really interesting that that's all over the map. Um, but other things are not like team and like, uh, you know, um, a lot of the MVP stories are slung together and, you know, we got it barely working and it was ugly and, and we shipped it anyway <laughs> and it didn't feel good, but we did it. <laughs> and, um, so yeah, I mean, you know, that's a little disorganized as far as a response, but, um, I'll keep going. I'll, I'll get that episode going. Yeah. I think that one yeah, would be that'd awesome. Be great. I, I'd love to get sort of that macro level view because I think mm-hmm. there's things that are, that I, those things that are consistent, I think they're universal, not just even within the technical spectrum. It's in the broader kind of like foundership and entrepreneurial spectrum. It's like, People, people, people is kind of like, you know, like it's all about people. Um, I feel like sometimes technology is just so subjective, you know, that it's hard to rationalize around a certain set of things. And it's also something that like, I don't know, my view is like, I'm going to be wrong about. So I I try to build that into whatever, whatever I do. And, And I think that's where you get different perspectives. And I think that might be driven from experience, you know, people who have, more experience have different, a different set of ways that they weigh the equation of solutioning something, um, either because they've been through the pains or they've had the wins, hard to say, but I think it's, it's really interesting. And that's where, because it's so subjective, the more that you can put out there, I think that creates this feedback loop on the, on the first thing, on the team's thing. 
because I think mm. a lot of the disconnect for um, why it's hard sometimes to find that person, that archetype that you said everyone's looking for is that that mm. experience isn't ac- accessible. And I think the more people have been through, you know, what we used to joke as the death march in, in my agency days, you know, you're working <laughs> the weekends and you're doing what you got to do uh, to get it out the door, you're shipping it and you're like, darn, if I had to just spend a little bit more time investing my innovation tokens into things that mattered, um, the diff- you start to make different decisions. And so I think more the more you can expose people to those stories like you are doing or even we're trying to do, I think the more it shapes that perspective and ideally the more people who are able to see their technology solutions through that lens. And, and I think that's one of the mm-hmm. primary roles of a CTO to, is to bridge that gap. But I think the scale in which you can do it with your episodes and the learning that you're amassing from people is just on a whole level, a different level of impact for, 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 you know, people who are on the up and coming, um, you know, Right on, right good on. Work. Good work, man. <laughs> Thanks. It's fun. And you know, it's, that's, it's cool. It doesn't feel like work. It's fun. Let's, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about your guys' tools and technology. Obviously, you've learned so much. So, you know, let's unpack Noah a little bit. <laughs> Noah's team. What, so, how are you, you – you mentioned you're using Parse, but, like, how are you guys setting up your software delivery? Let's talk a little bit about the tools. How do they integrate? Um, you know, what's worked, what hasn't? You know, what have you thrown away? Um, I would love to just see now – as you have that macro level view, how it's impacted your own practices with your team. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, oh, that's a good, good question. How organize those thoughts in my head. So we're not on parse anymore. Um, so we, we started out building the MVP on parse. Uh, we launched on parse. Um, and then we quickly got off of parse, uh, because we, we outgrew it. Um, you know, parse is node based, Mongo based, uh, and it's uh, a framework, and it worked great to get us up and running and get a prove a concept. Um, but if we wanted to do any sort of analysis on our data, we just couldn't use. We didn't feel we could use Mongo to really get it done. So we ended up rewriting our own backend, um, or ended up writing our own backend um, from the parse world into uh, a node-based solution, and then using Postgres. So that's where we kind of introduced our own monolith, right? Um, built that monolith. We sat on it for two years, I'd say, uh, two-ish years before we started to see performance issues. Um, You know, we we use Heroku um, and and AWS, um, which Heroku is a little more expensive, obviously. Is there AWS for RDS uh, for Postgres? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah, AWS for RDS, um, and then Heroku for all our servers, um, and then we started to see uh, you know performance issues pr- primarily on the RDS side, um, but a little bit on the Heroku side too. And we were just um, you know in a, a good problem to have. We had so much activity on the platform that uh, it was starting to cause performance problems. We're like, okay, this is great. We've arrived. Now we know we got to solve this problem. Um, so, you know, where we're moving towards is more of a, uh, microservice type architecture where we're using, um, Kubernetes and containers. Um, what are we using and to organize? I think we're using Kafka to do our internal messaging, but between the, all of the services, uh, no, yeah, for, for the messaging, but then service mesh, we're using STO, um, still using RDS, but, um, Breaking that apart, we're moving from Heroku to AWS to get fully off of Heroku. EKS um, or something like that, the Elastic Kubernetes service? Yeah, that's right. That's yep, good. that's right. Um, so we're pretty jazzed about that. Um, 
kind of at a high level, that's, that's, uh, you know, it's getting to the point where I, I know less than my team does. So I would probably have to pull them in if we wanted to get any more in the weeds, uh, which is a good place to be. Uh, it's a weird place to be for me, but it's a it's a really good place to be when I have I have such an amazing team. Yeah. Um, what about yeah, source control are... and sort of like CICD? Are you guys on, on GitHub, GitHub Actions? Yep. That sort yep, of GitHub. GitHub, we don't really use Actions. Um, CICD, we're using Circle CI. Cool. Um, oh, what else are we using? Um, I feel like there's some other things, uh, kind of in the middle of that, but I don't remember. Circle CI is our primary one. Cool. Yeah, they they've been really, you know, like gobbling up a lot of the market. I think what we've heard a lot about and use a lot of actions, and I think there's still just a lot of things that are kind of missing there that people are asking for, and you mm-hmm. know, and I think Circle CI is ahead of that. Um, you know, what about like at the Node Node.js level? I mean, you obviously are started with a monolith and then we're moving towards services. Is that just pretty vanilla express that you use or are you using some sort of framework for how you think about the service oriented architecture? Yeah, I, I, uh, we're using express. Cool. Um, so express, yeah. So it's pretty, um, pretty wide open, uh, as far as there, uh, I think we're open. I think we're open to, if you've got any suggestions, <laughs> uh, I think we're open to that, but, um, but yeah, that's the kind of the route we're going, um, sort of slicing off, uh, you know, obviously our high throughput services and trying to maximize uh, or optimize is a better word, how we, you know, right size them, how we process data, things like it, the same thing everybody's doing with microservices. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, I mean, I, I think Express is a solid choice and I know there's people out there who may not, but I mean, I, I got into Express very early on, you know, thank mm-hmm. you TJ for creating that um, personally. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I just, dis- I think I disagree a bit with our VP, our new VP of engineering, Luca, on some of this, he's really keen actually on um, on something called Fastify, which is uh, a different framework. I haven't spent that much time with it, but I sort of went into Express, really loved Express, got involved in something called Feathers, which is essentially like a service-oriented framework that you plug into Express yeah. to basically just give you very easy um, RESTful APIs. And um, you know, probably like you, I've spent a lot less time in the code as of recently. Uh, and so I defer a lot of these, you know, what good decisions are to Luca. I know he's really, um, excited and the team's really excited about, about Fastify. A lot of talk of things like gRPC, um, Mm. you know, Google's RPC framework. There's, um, a gentleman I met recently named Peter and Peter has started a business, um, called, I think it's called buff.build, buf.build. And it's essentially all these tools around gRPC and, and, um, you know, I, I can't really state with any authority, but what, you know, it's the murmurs I've been hearing and somewhat coming out of the enterprise space is kind of that HTTP's dead, gRPC's the future. I'm like, oh no, more tools to learn. Can I just have Express? Um, so, I mean, there's such a spectrum of things that you can implement. I really like your stack because I think it's practical. It makes it quite um easy for you to hire and train up and enable your talent. Yeah. Obviously, you know, there were some compromises as you decided to go from Heroku to Kubernetes. And one of the things we hear a lot of times from teams who adopt things like Kubernetes early or the cloud native um, ecosystem is, you know, about the challenges that they're, they're potentially going to go through or that they do go through as they deal with 
the you know the idea that of Kubernetes, which is you know a platform for building platforms rather than like a fully mm-hmm. big SaaS. How, how did you guys think that through and rationalize that, and what kind of changes did you make, sort of as a as a technology exec to kind of try to set yourself up for success with that journey? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's interesting. I, I would to get really in the weeds of where we had to go through the transition. And I'd have to bring my architect in my lead architect, Andrew plan. We should have him or, or we, I'm not, I'm not a part of your show. You guys should you have him be. on the show. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love that. I'd love that. But, um, but you know how we thought about it at a high level was, you know, this is what we've seen. This is what we seen that makes sense. We, you know, we had some conversations with some friends, uh, a CTO of um, a company called Alto, which is like, um, subscription Uber, we'll call it. Um, and it's in, it's in DFW. I think they're deploying into California too, um, given the new AB five stuff. But we talked, I talked to him and, um, Tim, excuse me, uh, his name is Jonathan Campos and he is a Kubernetes nut. He's a Google, uh, fanboy, um, has been an architect for a long time. And, uh, he kind of explained the way that Kubernetes worked and the way that containers were, were, would work with pods and everything. And it just made sense. So when, you know, when we decided to move forward with a solution um, to go away from monolithic and, and to go into something a little more um, elastic uh, we, we went with what made sense and that is what made sense to us at the time. Uh, and gosh, we're still learning, uh, every day as we do this. And I, I think there'll probably be times where we're like, ah, I wish we'd have known that last year. Now we got to change something. But, um, for now it's still what makes sense to us. Yeah. It's a big ecosystem, lots to learn and still lots ahead of us. Uh, well, cool. I think we're just about at time. Yeah. We're, we're just about out of time. Any last thoughts, Noah? Um, this, is, uh, this has been super fun. I mean, <laughs> let's let's do it again. I think uh, I'm super excited about uh, some of the new stuff that, Kyle, you were mentioning. I can't wait to hear more about it. Yeah. Um, uh, you mentioned the pitch, so I'm ready for the pitch. Cool. And, uh, and yeah, no, it's just been super cool. You guys are doing great work. Awesome. Where can people find awesome. you online? Where can- yeah, <laughs> I take it your taglines, Tristan. You, you, know, you, know, you know it too well now. <laughs> um, people can find me at, so if you want to learn about me, uh, my website is noahlabhart.com, not Lambert, labhart.com. And, uh, and then if you want to learn about variable, it's variableops.com. And then the podcast code story is codestory.co.co or on any major podcast directory. All right. Sounds good. Well, that's all we have time for today. It was a pleasure, Noah. Remember, uh, for all the audience out there, to click subscribe to never miss any of our weekly videos. And uh, post any of your favorite parts in the comments or any guests you'd like to see on the show. I think I, I think for this week, we'll give away a piece of free swag for uh, some of the top comments. So let's see, uh, let's see what happens. And uh, that's it for Op Show today. All right. Thanks so much, Sean. Thanks for having me. Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money.